I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. This is the kind of life I want. I want adventures. Again, I want the super blue sky. I want to feel free. I want the clear air. And coming back home and back to the marriage, um, I didn't feel that. I didn't feel that. And so that was sort of the first inkling of like, this isn't okay. This, you know, this isn't okay. This, I, I've gotten away from myself. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Tisha Filia is the author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, a breakout collection of short stories about the sex lives and spiritual lives and emotional lives of Black women in the church. The book had a hard time finding a publisher, but once it was published, it won the 2021 Penn Faulkner Award and the 2020 Story Prize and the 2020 LA Times Book Prize and was a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction. I, like nearly everyone else, fell very hard in love with this book of stories. And so it was exciting to get to talk to Disha about some of the big decisions and leaps of faith that made the book possible. The big one, it turns out, was her decision to leave her second marriage. So that's what we talked about. Here's Disha. So I have said and written extensively that this was a second marriage that should not have been a second date. Um... (laughs) So, you know, there were like two sort of turning points um, and a book. 
So there was a, a, a person, a place, and a book that, uh, oh, I guess two places, a person, and a book that, that led to um, me making that decision. Um, so first it would have been, um, I was still married at that time and we had dated long distance and we were married long distance because we both co-parented, you know, with kids from our respective first marriages. And so during all of, so from the time we started dating, we um, had, we would spend Thanksgiving together. And so, you know, alternating years, we would have our kids and then not have our kids. And so whether we had our kids or not, we were always together for Thanksgiving. So um, 2016 Thanksgiving rolls around and it's a year where we are going to have the kids. And, um, you know, I started the conversation, you know, where do we, what do we want to do this year for Thanksgiving? Cause we've done the traditional thing. We did the you know, go to Great Wolf Lodge and, you know, we've traveled for Thanksgiving. And so it was like, what do we want to do this year? What was the question? And um, he said sort of unilaterally that we were going to see his family. uh, And um, that's not something I wanted to do. That's not something my kids wanted to do. And it was odd because he hadn't wanted to see his family. And so it just, you know, it was not something anybody really wanted. Um, but, you know, what was more troubling was that he had made this decision unilaterally. And it, um, and I, I didn't like the way that felt. And there, it was not a healthy um, relationship. Um, in retrospect, I know it was an emotionally re- abusive relationship. And so that kind of unilateral decision was kind of par for the course. And, um, but I got a wild hair and, uh, that summer I had gone to, um, San Miguel de Allende, Mexico for the first time with, um, some writer friends. And I'd stayed for a week and couldn't wait to go back, um, with my family. And, uh, and so as soon as he said, you know, that he, and you know, that, this is, you know, what he wanted to do. I said, well, you can go, you know, he could go with his kids. And I said, and you know, my girls and I, we're going to go to Mexico. I just decided right there on the spot that not only was I not going to go to Thanksgiving, um, at his family's, um, but that my daughters and I would go to San Miguel. Um, and I, and it just, (laughs) and, and so, you know, um, going to San Miguel with my daughters, um, it w- you know, it's just a beautiful city and I, I love the city, but I also loved, and this is why I wanted to go back. I loved who I was there, you know, when I went the first time without my kids, I, you know, was writing and I felt free and the air was clear. It seemed like the sky was blue. Everything, all the colors were were brighter, you know. And I felt like I had returned to myself there. And so it had been in the back of my mind of you know wanting to go there with my family. And um, and so then when my daughters and I did go, um, we one of the things we did was this horseback ride up a canyon wall and back down, um, 150 feet up. And I hadn't been on a horse in 25 years and I got a temperamental horse Oh my god! and it was just terrifying. Um, and the tour guides 
you know, there was a group of cowboys that took us out and everybody was assigned a cowboy. And, um, and they led us up to take a break when we got to the top and we were on this cliff. And I noticed that each cowboy was leading a horse and rider to the edge of the cliff for a photo op. And I am terrified of heights. And I also had this angry horse <laughs> and I don't have very good Spanish. So I start trying to tell my cowboy please don't leave me. I want you to stay and fool the horse and be in the picture with me. But I don't have all those words in Spanish. All I could say was por favor, por favor, <laughs> over, over, over and over again. And uh, he was nodding. So I was like, okay, well, maybe he understands. And so he led the horse and me up to the edge of the cliff and left me. And I, <laughs> and then, but I clearly didn't die. He, they took the picture. Uh, he came and got me and then there was this just careening ride back down the canyon wall because it's super steep so we were going super fast and I just knew the horse was going to throw me but he didn't um, and I say all that to say that it, it was something about that experience of being out of my comfort zone and surviving and feeling like I came out of it shaken my daughters were fine. They were riding, holding, you know, with one hand and like their iPhone with the other hand, like they totally unfazed. Um, meanwhile, I got a death grip, you know, they're galloping. I'm trotting. My horse is upset about this. Um, but at, after all of that, um, I just felt like I can do anything. I can survive anything. I don't have to be afraid. And you know, this is the kind of life I want. I want adventures. Again, I want the super blue sky. I want to feel free. I want the clear air and coming back home and back to the marriage. Um, I didn't feel that. I didn't feel that. And so that was sort of the first inkling of like, this isn't okay. This, you know, this isn't okay. This I, I've gotten away from myself. That's just, you know, I just kept feeling that. But then, you know, you ease back into routine. And, and so then we're into 2017 and um, still in, you know, this marital doldrums. And, uh, and then July of that year, I went to Taos, New Mexico for my Cambilio fellowship. So it's a fellowship um, for writers of the African diaspora. And you, the retreat is every summer in Taos. And over the time um, as a fellow, you can go for three summers and then you are an alumni fellow. You can keep going, but you know, it's a different experience when you're an alumni fellow. So I had gone for the first time in 2015. You meet other writers um, who are, you know, early career emerging writers. Um, and you work with faculty for a week and there are readings and you're in Taos, you're in, in you know, the middle of a, a national forest and um, Southern Methodist University's satellite campus is there and you're in dorms that are called casitas. Everything is adobe and you have to cross the stream to get to workshop in the morning. It's just gorgeous, you know, and um, and again, the same sort of thing happened where the sky is bluer here. 
I feel freer here. The air seems clear. My friends were like, you're absolutely glowing here. My skin looked different. I looked different. Um, I became friends um, with another writer there, um, a, a, a guy who was much younger than me. Um, and there was just sort of this weird connection. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, going to like have an affair or anything like that. But it was just, it just was like a, a connection with another human being um, that I hadn't had in a really long time. And I was like, this is how I want to feel. And this is how I want to connect with people. And this is who I want to be. And, um, and it just intensified what I felt in San Miguel. And so I was seeing a therapist at the time and, um, and I came back from New Mexico and I told her, you know, all of this. So this again would be, you know, summer 2017. And, um, and I, you know, just wasn't happy in the marriage and I was feeling like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And she said, you know, we can talk about this marriage. We can talk about your first marriage. She's like, but ultimately this is about you. And these are, you know, partners that you've chosen and you're going to continue to choose these kinds of partners unless you figure out what's going on with you that led you to choose them. Partners who aren't good for you for whatever reason. And, mm -hmm. um, and she said, you know, and I think this all goes back to, you know, childhood stuff and, you know, my, the relationship that I had, or perhaps you'd say didn't have with my father. And, um, and so she said, you know, I want you to find a book on fatherless daughters. And she said, I wish I could give you a title. She's like, because I don't, but I don't know of one. She said, but there's got to be a, a book out there for fatherless daughters who are trying to heal that wound. wound. And um, so maybe you can find one. So I start hunting on Amazon and there are lots of fatherless daughter books, but they are very, either very religious, which didn't work for me. Uh, you know, sort of like, well, even if, you know, your earthly father wasn't great, you've got your heavenly father, you know, amen. That didn't work. <laughs> uh, and then there was, uh, you know, um, here's how you can heal your relationship with your father. Well, my father died in 2005. So, you know, he's not around to heal anything. Um, so I kept looking and I went through dozens of books until I found, finally found one called The Fatherless Daughter Project. And the two authors are and researchers are themselves fatherless daughters. And they interviewed a ton of women who were fatherless, either because of, you know, emotional abandonment, physical abandonment, abuse, um, drug addiction, divorce, death, um, or even people who had their father in the home, but still were, you know, they were emotionally unavailable. Um, and looked at all of the different ways that that experience of fatherlessness impacted these women and their subsequent relationships with men. And um, I was like, this is the book for me. So I got the book and I started reading it and I started taking notes. And I basically, as I'm taking the notes, decided from <laughs> everything I was reading, oh, I have to get out of this marriage right now, like right now, like right now. <laughs> And, and Wait, what did you what did you read that? So, do you remember what it was you were reading that made you think that? Yeah. So it was this idea that you 
you know, when you've had the experience of fatherlessness, you know, it devastates you. It's, it's traumatic. It's a wound that has to heal, but most of us don't recognize it, um, as a wound or as trauma. It's like, oh, these are women who, you know, they've got daddy issues or women who, you know, do crazy things in relationships, you know, they're just crazy. No, it, it, there's usually a, you know, fatherlessness at play here. Or, um, you know, one of the things that they said is, was common amongst fatherless daughters is when you were a teenager, you took breakups harder than other girls. And that was totally me. Because what mm-hmm. you're doing is you're trying to recreate the bond with your father. Um, and oddly enough, you'll choose someone like him because let's see how did they explain it like let's say your father was you know a deadbeat and just not reliable and all of those things it you don't one would think that you would like you would think i'm going to find a man who's the opposite of that who's going to be reliable and so forth but the brain likes patterns and what you're what we become wired for is this I've got to convince him I've got to be better. And this, and if I can just be better, then he'll be better this time. Right. So we want to replay the old script, which is the deadbeat, but this time we're going to win over the deadbeat and this time, you know, it's going to be better. And that's why, you know, people choose somebody who's not great for them because they're trying to re it's like a, get a redo but you're not aware of this, right? We choose these people because, oh, I love him or, you know, whatever. But, um, but these are the dynamics at work. Um, and so that was a huge light bulb for me because even though my two ex-husbands are very different people and they were, those were very different marriages, neither of them um, could, you know, be who I needed emotionally in a relationship. And that was another chapter that was a big light bulb for me. It was like, what does a fatherless daughter need from, um, you know, and this is a very heteronormative book, you know, what do they need in, in, from a partner? What do they need in relationships? And we need a lot um, because there's a lot of healing happening at the same time. We're trying to build a relationship with this other person. And, um, and so I started to realize, you know, this is why I made the choices that I made. These were not good choices for me. So that was the first thing. But the biggest aha moment came when I was reading the section on partners of fatherless daughters and, and they were interviewing these men and, and they were talking about their experiences in these relationships. And the one guy, one of the guys that was interviewed said, um, you know, she has to do this work of healing. You know, this is her work to do, but I'm there to support her because anything you're trying to do is easier if you've got support, right? Not anything earth shattering. But I read that and I burst into tears because there was a time with my then husband where I was struggling with, um, you know, grief um, because I, I, my mother, my father, and my grandmother all died in 2005, unrelated deaths, but they all died. Um, and uh, I met my, you know, second husband shortly after that. And, you know, we married a few years after that. And 
I knew, even though I didn't know the fatherless stuff, I knew that the grief stuff was unresolved and that I was struggling with that and, um, and struggling with, you know, all of the problems in our marriage as well. And I just remember saying to him one time, I'm really struggling. And this was a couple of years uh, prior and, you know, talking about my grief and those sorts of things and telling him that, you know, his behavior was really exacerbating things for me. And he said that has, you know, your grief has nothing to do with me. Mm. And so to read this guy saying, well, yeah, that's her, you know, healing work. But of course, I'm going to support her because, you know, everybody needs support. And, and, the, and the work is easier if you've got support. And so it just let me know that what I was expecting and looking for from my then husband was not unreasonable. Now, it wasn't reasonable given the person he was, you know, but I was not, you know, at fault somehow for expecting my partner to be supportive of me. And so I felt very validated by what I read. And, you know, again, I'm taking all of these notes and that was one where I had a lot of notes on that. And I decided one day, once, you know, I finished the book and I was like, yep, that's it, I'm done. And, um, and, I, and I've said that about both of my marriages, like when I'm, you know, you talked earlier about departures, you know, I stay too long, but when I'm done, I'm done. And, um, and my way, because we were long distance of divorcing him, I sent him an email, <laughs> I sent him an email and I told him that I was done. And I, uh, attached a link to the Google docs at all my notes. And <laughs> was like, and here's why. <laughs> oh my God. Here you, go. you, yeah, there, that, that's why, that's why I'm done. That's why I'm out. Um, so Yeah. So that was that was the first one. That that was the marriage one. Um w- wow. I mean, this is not relevant to I mean, necessarily the story or certainly to your literary life, but I'm mm-hmm. so curious. Did how did he respond to being mm-hmm. divorced by email with Google Doc attachments? <laughs> um, you know, he was surprised. Um and one of the things that, you know, had been a dynamic in our marriage, um, and th- and I found out that this was a common thing amongst fatherless daughters is, you know, the we, we are in these painful relationships and we realize they're not working. Okay, I'm going to leave. And we never do. We just say we're going to leave. And it's just, it becomes a cycle. So he had heard me say before that, you know, I was going to leave, but I never did. And whenever I would say it, it was always when we were in person or on the phone and, um, and he was very, you know, kind of casual about it. And he would say, you know, I don't want you to be anywhere you don't want to be, you know, if that's what you feel like you need to do. But of course I never did. So this time, I think the email with the notes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the documentation, um, I think he knew right away that this was different. This is different. Um, and so, you know, he called me and we were talking and I wasn't budging. I wasn't budging at all. And um, and he was supposed to come to town that weekend and I told him not to come. 
that was different. And then I think maybe 24 hours passed and, um, and he, I think maybe he left me a message or he sent a text or something, but basically he said, I am going to come to town and we're going to work this out and divorce is not an option. And I called him back and I was livid. And I was like, you have no right to tell me that divorce is not an option. <laughs> divorce is not only an option, it's the thing that's going to happen. Um, and he apologized for that. And then the next thing he did was send me an email. And it was, you know, 10 things that over the years I had asked of him in the relationship that he refused to do. And he was pledging to do all 10 of those things. And I still said no. And because I just, I, I was done. Like I, it just, the idea of staying another second was just intolerable um, to me. And it was during this time, I was in the process of writing the stories that would become um, the collection, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. I did not yet um, have a book deal, um, but I was working on the stories and working on getting three of three stories published. Uh, my agent said that once I got three stories published, she could shop the collection as a partial manuscript. So I was working a, nine, a corporate nine to five and trying to squeeze in, working on the short stories when I could, but this mess of a marriage was always hanging over my head. And I think one of the reasons that I didn't look back once I told him that is that I instantly felt freer. Like I, I literally felt lighter. I felt like a weight had been lifted and I just had more clarity. I was no longer bogged down worrying about this marriage and it did free me up to focus more on my creative life um and so i i never look back i never look back stories are about, you know, um, I mean, they're about a lot of things, but I'm, I'm reflecting on the collection based on the, what you were just telling me. A lot of these stories are about thwarted intimacy um, and the way that, I don't know, pain, pain or thwarted intimacy, the pain of thwarted intimacy can kind of pass generationally there it's I'm thinking there are maybe not a lot of fathers but there are a lot of mothers and daughters yep. trying to deal with with men yes <laughs> um <laughs> in this book do you feel like that was um were you really um kind of using the space of these stories to try to sort some of that out for yourself or was it just the case where often the things that are sort of active in our our minds and mm -hmm. hearts tend to work their way into what we're writing. I think it was definitely subconscious and I think of it more um 
and less about the men per se, and certainly less about my ex than just a sense of longing. And, you know, my own sense of longing, you know, predates, you know, either of my husbands, you know, definitely started with my own father um, and longing, you know, for um, longing for a relationship with him that was like, you know, what I saw of TV dads and daughters, you know, and those kinds of relationships. So I think there's a lot of longing in the collection. Um, I very consciously sort of um, compartmentalize my marriage from that marriage from the rest of my life. You know, I hid um, from my family and friends, you know, all the bad parts of that marriage. Um, and I think I even kind of hid it from myself um, because, you know, I don't write directly in the stories um, about, you know, a relationship between, a, you know, like the center, making that the centerpiece, I guess that would be um, how to make love to a physicist. I didn't start that story until I had left him, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think, it, you know, I so compartmentalized that, you know, I, when I was working on my stories, I didn't think about him or the marriage or any of that. But that longing, because that feeling had been with me, you know, my whole life, that I think informed the stories. Yeah. So many of the stories seem to be about or, or include conversations between women mm -hmm. or sometimes failed conversations between women about how they are dealing with their longing. Mm -hmm. And I was curious about who the women were that you felt in conversation with in your mind mm -hmm. while you were writing? Um, so myself. <laughs> and then, <Sure. laughs> you know, when I was um, growing up, um, from the time I was little, you know, straight into my adolescence, you know, thinking about and watching church women, um, but also, you know, women outside of the church, but really just being curious about how women and, you know, these would be black Southern women, how did they navigate all these rules? Because that's what I came to know that, you know, sex and intimacy was all about. It was like a lot of rules, you know, don't do this and don't do that and punishment. And if you do, you know, you're a bad girl or you're going to go to hell or, you know, there's this whole concept of sin and, so I couldn't understand, like, how do you navigate life um, with these very human desires if everything that feels good and that you might want to do is wrong? I, I you know, I, I was just baffled. And so I would imagine, you know, and wonder about these women. Of course, I would never ask them, you know, but I wondered, did they like sex? Did they, you know, masturbate? And the ones who weren't married, you know, did they sneak and have sex, even though, you know, they weren't supposed to have sex outside of marriage? You know, how did they handle this? Um, and so that made a huge impression on me growing up. These women made a huge impression on me. And so when I started writing, um, you know, 20 plus years ago, um, and I was not living in my, in the South anymore. I was living in my hometown anymore. 
I, I was very isolated at the time I was living in the suburbs and uh, here in Pittsburgh. And, um, and it was my, you know, I, I kind of reached back into my memories and was really led by nostalgia and imagination. And it was those women that I was thinking about and wondering about still. And then once I had become a woman and it's like, huh, I did everything right. But the way they tell you you're supposed to do it, why am I so unhappy? You know, <laughs> what, you know, this feels like a con. I don't know. <laughs> and so I, um, but I was too afraid uh, to write about my own dissatisfaction. And so between that and the nostalgia, I gave this dissatisfaction, my dissatisfaction to end my longing to these women, because that's what I imagined for them, that they had these secret lives. Um, that they appeared one way in church, um, but they had a lot of other stuff going on with them too. Do you feel, when you were just talking, you you said something that made me feel like there was a time when you realized, oh, hey, I've done everything I was supposed to do and still I'm not happy. Mm -hmm. And you sort of alluded to that as if it's something you've been able to move past. Um, and I'm wondering if that's true, that feeling of, of oh, I'm going to do things by the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the the necessary, I don't know, decision to do things in a different way for your happiness. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's related to the story about leaving your marriage. I don't know. Yeah. Well, leave, well, so that was the second one I left. So my first marriage was, um, I just want to be very clear. There was no abuse or anything like that in my first marriage. Uh, my first marriage was to my co-parent who I have written a book with and who I still co-parent with. Um, our daughters are now almost 18 and almost 23. He and I are still friends. Um, everything is amicable. Um, we started dating when we were 18. And when we were 22, we got married, which is way too young, like super young. Um, and, you know, but, you know, we were good Christian kids and that's what you were supposed to do. Um, but it really wasn't the best thing for us. Um, we weren't entirely compatible uh, you know, just, and we were so young. Like, I, I mean, my daughter is 22 now. I cannot imagine her being married now the way I was. But at the time, you know, I thought I knew everything and I thought this was it. You know, I'd won the lottery. Marriage was like the lottery. Um, and so, you know, doing all of that and, and, you know, and marriage was, was like the the brass ring. Like when I, the way I was raised that that was the pinnacle and that's what you do. And, um, and yet I wasn't happy, you know, it was not a happy marriage. And so now what, <laughs> you know, um, so having to, you know, to, to navigate that. Um, and at the time, as I said, you know, I didn't feel courageous enough, nor did I have the writing chops at the time to figure out how to write about how I was feeling in the moment. And that's something that I can say, let's see, if I started writing in 2000, only in the last year have I gotten comfortable really writing about what's happening in the moment. Um, so much for me is nostalgia. So much is memory. So much is 
you know, okay, my mom died in 2005. I can write about her in 2015. My dad died in 2005. I can write about him in 2015. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I tend to um, take time. And, um, and so, you know, my writing life and my, you know, leaving the marriage, you know, um, they were not related in terms of theme, but they were related in the sense that once I got divorced, um, cause I had been a stay at home mom, it was like, okay, so now I've got to, this writing thing has to generate income if I'm going to do it. So then, you know, it changed the kind of writing I was doing. It changed the kind of other freelance work I took on because, you know, it's difficult to make a living just by writing, or at least, you know, in the process of building a career. Um, and so I started doing a lot of other kinds of writing and editing less fiction um, for the longest time. I, you know, really got away from fiction. It was like something I would do here and there. Um, I was working on a novel for a while, but it was mostly personal essay and, you know, writing for individuals and, and entities and things like that. Um, and so that's how leaving that marriage influenced me professionally. Um, it pushed me into a whole other genre. Um, and then of course the co-parenting book, you know, is, is not fiction. Um, and so it's taken me a while to, to get back to fiction, but, um, but it, you know, the decision to, um, to leave that marriage definitely changed the trajectory of my life. Do you feel like leaving the second marriage, which it sounds like really allowed you to finish this collection in the way Mm -hmm. that you wanted to and needed to, Mm -hmm. do you feel like it's changed the way the writer you are now? Not just your ability to have finished this collection Mm -hmm. as beautifully as you did, but has it, has it changed the writer you are as you work now? Um, I think I, I, I just, when I was in that second marriage, I was really a shell of myself. I didn't feel confident. I didn't feel good about myself. Um, I didn't feel good about life. Um, and it was, you know, um, I still was writing, you know, cause there were things that, you know, stories that got written while I was in that marriage. But once I left, it wasn't so much, you know, oh, you know, now my, I'm writing different kinds of stories or I'm spending more time writing or, or whatever it was. I mean, and I probably did spend more time writing, but it was more who I was. I was, you know, I was lighter. I, you know, my sense of humor came back. I think that showed that, you know, if anything, that might have been a factor in the stories. But I think it really amplified the boldness like and other people have used that word and asked me like how did you come to write so boldly and not worry about what the church was going to say and that kind of stuff and my usual answer to that question is that it came from losing my mother and and realizing like you know my mother was 52 when she died um and I'll be 50 um next month and real and I was like 34 when she died and 
realizing that like we don't have time to waste you know being afraid or playing small like we've got to do the things we want to do and we've got to do the things the way we want to do them so I don't have time to worry about what the church is going to think you know I'm going to write the stories that I want to write um but this conversation is 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 making me realize that I think there was another level or layer of boldness that came with the freedom I felt from being out of that marriage. I think I could be bold. I could be playful. I could be fully myself um, because I wasn't miserable, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. It's like what you were talking about earlier, being in Taos yeah. and feeling like, oh, this is, this is me. This yeah. is how I could feel. And so that, that Taos, Disha came back to Pittsburgh, <laughs> you know, that's, you know, my, that Taos, San Miguel, me, I could, I, I would, I became her all the time. I didn't have to leave and go somewhere to be free. Like I was free within myself once I left that marriage. And she's, and she writes boldly. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm just reflecting on what we just said about boldness. And I think it's boldness, but also a kind of, and, and I think this is different from boldness, a kind of fearlessness that allowed me to make mistakes, that allowed me to try something and see, does this work? No. Okay. I'll try something else, but not be so afraid of, you know, what if it doesn't work or what if I don't get a book deal or what if the public, you know, I, I stopped being afraid in general, you know, because I, again, I, I think leaving the marriage also gave me a sense of urgency too. Like, Oh, I lost in a way 11 years of my life. You know, I don't want to lose anymore. I don't want to waste anymore. I'm going to, you know, do all the things and try all the things. And, um, you know, I left that marriage and I chose myself, um, you know, I can, I, I felt very capable. Um, I felt very confident in myself um, that, and that wasn't there before. And I think that definitely, um, I started writing faster. It's, it's coming back to me now. I was writing faster after, uh, you know, after I left that marriage, one, I had a deadline looming and I used to think, oh, it always takes me months or years to write a story. And that just simply wasn't true. Sometimes it does, but it doesn't have to. I discovered that. Um, so I think I got, I became more nimble. Yeah, I think that's a good word. Nimble. <laughs> I feel like people are going to listen to this episode and initiate divorces. You make it sound fantastic for the writing life. <laughs> well, here's the thing, especially for women, you know, that you can ask almost any um, divorced woman who co-parents with a man that suddenly you have time because your kids are gone for a set amount of time. But when they're in the house, you're always on. Funny how that happens. When you're all in the house together, the woman never gets a break or it's difficult to get a break. But one thing divorce does is does give you a built-in break. Now you have to be willing 
to use that time to get your work done. And like, I look at women now who are new to that and they're like, I just miss my kids so much. I'm like, you'll get over it. Soon you'll be like, bye. (laughs) (laughs) They're fine. You'll be fine. Go right. You know? Um, Yeah. I I don't know. I, I think that um, I think we should talk more honestly and openly about divorce and, and about marriage, you know, because we go into marriage with this idea that it's supposed to last forever. And I don't know that we challenge that idea enough. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.